Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening. My name is Jason Cowley. I'm editor of the New Statesman. New Statesman has just celebrated its 100th birthday on 12th of April, and this is the second of our centenary debates and another sellout. The motion before the House tonight is the left won the 20th century. And I'll tell you who's going to be proposing the motion. It is Helen Lewis, who's deputy editor of the New Statesman. She runs our website and is driving our traffic to record highs. Um, Helen got caught in a something called a Twitter storm this week. Um, I'm not sure what that is, but something over intersectionality, Helen. And during the debate that raged, Helen was described as being in charge of feminism in Britain, (laughs) which makes it sound as if feminism is a multinational company. Perhaps perhaps it is, perhaps it is. Sitting to Helen's left, but I'm not sure to her left politically, (laughs) is Simon Heffer, distinguished columnist on the Daily Mail, an author, historian, and indeed a New Statesman contributor. Simon will also be speaking for the motion. And to his left, in every sense, is Mehdi Hassan, political director of the Huffington Post, ubiquitous broadcaster, tweeter, prolific tweeter, (laughs) former New Statesman staffer, still a New Statesman columnist, and Mehdi will be proposing the motion. Those Against, speaking against, to Mehdi's left is Tim Montgomery, until very recently was editor of the excellent Conservative Home website, has just been appointed comment editor of The Times, and he couldn't have had a more dramatic opening week following the death of Margaret Thatcher. And it's been said, and I think it's probably true, Tim is more influential when it comes to Conservative politics than many in the Cabinet. So it's great to see Tim and his opposing. <laughs> I'm not responsible. <laughs> <laughs> to Tim's left is Ruth Porter, um, Institute of Economic Affairs, very influential think tank. Dare I call it a free market think tank? You may indeed. She will be obviously speaking against. She doesn't believe the West, West sorry, left won the 20th century. That was a slip of the tongue. Did the West win the 20th century? <laughs> That's another question. And to her left, is Erin Jones, columnist on The Independent, author of a very good first book called Chavs, The Demonization of the Working Class. Sometimes you feel Erin is single-handedly taking the battle to the coalition on deficit reduction, on welfare reform, and he's emerged as a very, very influential leftist columnist. Here's our centenary issue. So I hope some of you have read it. If you haven't, there's an opportunity to buy it after the debate. It's full of rich content. I'm going to sit down because you aren't here to hear me. But before I sit down, how many of you, let's have a show of hands, how many of you believe that the left won the 20th century? Very few of you, actually. So those proposing the motion have their work to do. 
I'll say a few words about the format. Abstentions. What? Are there abstainers? Are there, there any abstainers? Ah. So that's interesting. <laughs> Again, those proposing will have to change your mind. Um, quickly on the format, each speaker will speak for up to eight minutes. They will have an opportunity to, others will have an opportunity to interject. You, the audience, I'd like to bring you in towards the end. So once each person has spoken, I'm going to open it up to the floor and hope to hear from you. Some challenging questions, little interjections, little statements. So let's try and make it a a very fluid and a very engaged evening. Thank you very much. I shouldn't be here, and in fact I wouldn't be here, along with several of my fellow panellists, if it weren't for the significant social advancements and victories achieved by the British left in the 20th century. In 1913, when the New Statesman was founded, it would have been inconceivable for a woman to be its deputy editor, even though a woman was a driving force behind its founding. I wouldn't have my degree, because Oxford didn't give them to women until 1920. Without the social changes that happened in the 20th century, Owen, I'm afraid you wouldn't have been able to get married, and I wouldn't have been able to get divorced. In 1913, when the New Statesman was founded, I wouldn't have even had the vote, Women didn't want it, they said. They couldn't handle the responsibility. They were too emotional. Their interests were perfectly safe in the hands of men. Funnily enough, those arguments are still wheeled out by many on the right to explain why women are so underrepresented in public life, why their work is so often unpaid or underpaid, why pink-collar jobs are traditionally less well-regarded. Women just don't want to be on boards hard enough. They like caring for elderly relatives for no pay. It's their choice to have a child. The history of British women's liberation throughout the 20th century is one of power wrestled reluctantly from right-wingers who seek to maintain the status quo. At the extreme end, you have figures like the American evangelical pastor, Pat Robinson, who described feminism, and I think this might be my favorite quote, as a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice <laughs> witchcraft, it gets better, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. <laughs> At least half of which sound very fun. I've started off talking about feminism because it's the cause closest to my heart. But the same is true of the other great progressive social movements in Britain during the 20th century. Each one saw the left pitted against the right, and each time the left won. In 1918, the Representation of the People Act gave women the vote. It was passed under a liberal prime minister, Lloyd George. In 1967, homosexuality was decriminalised after a private member's bill brought by a Labour MP, Leo Absey. The same year, the Abortion Act was introduced by the Liberal MP, David Steele, and enacted under the Labour government of Harold Wilson. Incidentally, the right is still trying to roll back access to abortion, with Nadine Doris most recently trying to cut the limit to 20 weeks. Tory cabinet ministers Jeremy Hunt and Maria Miller have both said that they would like to cut the limit. And to this day, the right thunders about teen pregnancy while having paroxysms about the two best methods to prevent it, better sex education in schools and better access to contraception. So when we look at British society, what do we see in the rights ledger for the 20th century? The most obvious example, and I'm sorry given that dear Lady Thatcher passed on last week, is Section 28, the 1988 legislation that forbade the promotion of homosexuality particularly as a pretended family relationship. Just a year earlier, Thatcher, who had previously voted for decriminalization of gay sex, lamented that children who need to be taught to respect traditional moral values are being taught that they have an inalienable right to be gay. And she thought this was a bad thing. 
the horror. Incidentally, on this issue, may I take a moment to congratulate Tim, who has publicly backed gay marriage, despite his friendship with many culturally conservative Tory MPs. In this, he has two things. He is a reverse Margaret Thatcher, coming to a more liberal, left-wing position. And secondly, in his party, he is in a minority. But even though Tony Blair's Labour government successfully passed the Civil Partnerships Act in 2004, even though YouGov polls show a majority of Britain support same-sex marriage, even though David Cameron has tried to claim that supporting marriage in any form is a culturally conservative thing to do, despite all this, when the House of Commons voted on gay marriage this year, our Conservative Prime Minister still couldn't lead a majority of his party through the eye lobby behind him. Of the Tories, just 127 voted for gay marriage. 136 voted against and 40 abstained. Compare that with Labour, where 22 MPs voted against and four Liberal Democrats, although admittedly there are, well, about three of them. <laughs> Wikipedia, which I would like to thank for all its sterling assistance in preparing this speech, keeps an incredibly useful list of the supporters and opponents of gay marriage. Spot the differences and similarities. In favour, the Green Party, the Liberal Democrats, the Labour Party, the Guardian, the Independent. Opposed, the BNP, UKIP, Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail. Now, I've been cheeky in talking about the last 10 years when we're supposed to be talking about the 20th century, but that's for a very good reason. The advances that we have made, thanks to feminism, thanks to the civil rights movement, thanks to a liberalisation of attitudes to immigration, thanks to gay rights campaigners, all these show how far we've come, but they also show how far the right has been left behind. Yes, the right likes to pay lip service to equality when the weight of public opinion demands it, but it never leads, it prefers to maintain the status quo. Despite this, our culture, our view of equality, what we believe is normal and natural, all this has changed beyond recognition in the 20th century. And it was the left that made it happen. Well, first of all, happy birthday to the new statesman. And um, quite an interesting debate arranged uh, today. I wasn't ever expecting to be on the same side as Owen Jones. Um, <laughs> The lion lies down with the lamb and the... I don't know who, who's the lion, who's the lamb. I'm not so uh, unfamiliar with being on the opposite side of the debate, Simon Heffer. That's been on a number of occasions. And that kind of raises the question and sort of slightly about the terms of the debate. We are asked to believe who won the 20th century. Was it the left or was it the right? And it does raise questions, what is the left? What is the right? What is... Uh, I think if you ask people what the Conservative Party, what the right stood for out there, we asked you now, some people would see the right as about libertarianism and freedom, and therefore would actually, some of the things that have just been claimed for the left, the right would feel we own too. Others would see the Conservatives, the right, much as they've been just been characterised as an authoritarian party um, on crime and immigration and issues like that. And so part of what I'm going to try and do is, in my brief remarks, is talk about what I think the right and the left are and uh, make the conclusion from that. And I would say, and I don't know whether this will be common ground, but I would say the 20th, who can claim to have won the 20th century is worth fighting for. Because I don't know about the people in this room, but if I had to choose any time to live, on planet Earth at any time. I would rather live now than any other time. If you look around the world, we may have particular challenges in our own countries at this very moment uh, in the developed West, particularly with debt. 
but actually, in terms of uh, life expectancy, freedom from disease, opportunities for leisure, both gender, uh, the spread of rights for uh, certain minorities, it never has been a better time to live. And so who won, who brought us to this point um, is certainly worth fighting for. My simple uh, opening case is that the 20th century began uh, with the Russian Revolution and it ended with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it was a century that looked most of the time as a century where the state was seen as to have most of the answers to life's problems. And you look at the inevitability of communism and socialism and greater state control that was posited to us through most of the, um, the last century. We were told that the Russian model uh, would work as recently as the 1980s when I was studying economics. The planned economy was taught alongside the capitalist economy. Russia was the first, the Soviet Union was the first nation to put a man into space. It looked like the future. China, India, Israel, European communist parties, they were all flourishing. Very late in the last century, it looked like the left-wing model of a dominant state was prospering. And then, of course, we had the great lady. Pause for hisses and boos. We had the great lady, we had Ronald Reagan, and we had Pope John Paul II, who came and stood up against uh, the direction which the world was going in. And things changed incredibly quickly. And my definition of what conservatism and the right is, is very simple. And I want to say that there are three great forces for good in the world. And those forces are, first of all, the desire to create wealth, to provide for your family, and to have the rewards for doing those things. And the that's the first one. And the 20th century proved that all the experiments of collective ownership failed. Whenever there was this connection between your effort and your desire to create wealth was separated from your ability to own and keep the product of what New Strothville economies went backwards. The reason why we are prospering as a world now is because all economies, nearly every country in the world, has accepted some model of capitalism. The second uh, great of three great conservative and right-wing beliefs is the belief in the importance of the family and of parenting. There is almost no force in civilization that is more significant than the love of a parent for their child. A parent will do almost anything for their children. And we were told by the left again and again that the family <clears throat> did not matter, that the family could be replaced by a welfare state. And all of the evidence is, and in the inequality that we have seen grown in some countries in recent times, is not largely an economic phenomenon. It is a problem of a of an inequality of social capital. It's a problem of different children having different um, amounts of support in the corner of their lives from different people. Point of information. Um, given that Sweden and the Nordic countries have more equal societies than our own, and they're societies that don't really care about family in the way that you're talking about family, how does that square with what you're saying? The evidence seems to be against you, Tim. I think, actually, if you look... 
I think if you look at countries though in Iberia, it's completely the opposite, where Spain and Portugal and Catholic nations where the family is valued, actually there is more equality. So there are, there are many variables at play here, Mehdi, that account for the differences. Finally, um, the third force that I think accounts for uh, why the um, right will are winning is the education. If you look at the three big reasons why people stay out of poverty and have the good life, you have to do three things. You have to get a job, you have to have, uh, not have children until you're 20, you have to form a stable family, and you have to finish school. Those are the three things that matter. 95, 96% chance of avoiding poverty if you do those three things. You have to have an education which stretches, where it isn't about exams that don't have um, rigor, it isn't about an education system which is run for the teachers rather than for Point of information. <laughs> and given and Tim, Tim, you don't have to take it, of course. I'll take one more and then I'm going to wrap Well, up. on the same theme, given that left-wing Finland has the best education system in the world, <laughs> how does the evidence fit with what you're saying? Mary, you seem very interested in Scandinavia. Well, Nordic countries. The basic, pro- the basic problem, Mehdi, with the left is that the left was... <laughs> Finland. The basic problem with the left is that the left was formed with the best of intentions. And it is, it is a great philosophy. You wear your heart on your sleeves. Everybody know that the left uh, uh, wants to improve the life chances of the poor. But actually, the left lost the 20th century in large part because you became detached from your core purposes. You became detached from your core purposes because you've now become imprisoned to a whole range of vested interests, including, notably, the teachers' unions. Teachers' unions, throughout most of the post-war period, hardly any teacher was sacked. Hardly any teacher was sacked in British schools because of incompetence or failure. And you know who suffered because of that? It's that the children suffered in schools because they weren't having the best teachers in front of them. And that is the ultimate failure of the left, in that becoming so detached from what actually was their founding principles. And it's the right now in people like Michael Gove who are championing <laughs> who are championing school choice, are putting t- pupils first, and that is why the right is now ahead on education. I'm going to uh, finish uh, just not, not with another tribute to uh, Michael Gove. Um, <laughs> but I can do that later in answer some questions if you uh, prefer. Um, I think it is interesting how uh, all of you lefties in the audience get incredibly wound up when people like me come forward and show that actually it is the right, it is Michael Gove, it is Ian Duncan Smith, and the emphasis on work and education, while you're more interested in producer interests, um, it gets you so wound up. Um, but, fi- but finally, I, I, I thought, Margaret Thatcher was not happy with the way she left Britain. She did not think that her work was complete. She was very clear that her work was was unfinished. And those people that want to defend what she stood for are unwise to ensure, to believe that it was finished. The work that still needs to be done, we clearly, the right clearly won the economic battles. What we still have to do is we need to fight those battles on the family and education. 
And that is where this 21st century has begun. You can call it social Thatcherism, if you like. And that's that unfinished work that this government is going to succeed in doing. Thank you for the Montgomery proposing is Simon Heffer. But I must, uh, I must begin with that phrase, the elephant in the room. In fact, there are two elephants in the room. You can probably smell them. The first one is uh, that the economic outcome of the 20th century was a clear victory for what people here have called the right. We'll come on to that in a moment. The second is that rather difficult business of the 72 years of oppression in Russia and the 44 years of oppression in much of the rest of Eastern Europe after the Second World War that culminated with the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Now, you might think that the left lost the argument because the Berlin Wall came down. Well, to an extent, yes, of course, it did. It was an inhumane, beastly system that denied people personal freedom. And I also think, however, it was nothing like the sort of socialism that we have had in this country. I grew up uh, in Harold Wilson's Britain. Uh, I grew up in a country run by men with very bad teeth in ill-fitting suits who were not elected and who constantly appeared on television talking about the aspirations of their members and why they were holding the country to ransom. Now, that was all pretty unpleasant, but of course, people had an opportunity to unelect the government that endorse those people when the next election came, even if it meant electing someone even worse like Ted Heath. <laughs> we had a democratic form of socialism. I've always thought that just because the Berlin Wall came down, because the militant, hard, extremist, anti-democratic left in Russia, and whose example was inflicted on the rest of Europe, and of course by, by Mao in China, with great brutalism, just because they lost the argument in that sense, doesn't mean that the whole of socialism was discredited any more than the whole of right-wing politics was discredited by a monster like Adolf Hitler. Not all people who are right-wing or even nationalists want to be genocidal maniacs, want to kill tens of millions of people, and want to inflict their views on everybody else. Some people do have a sense of pluralism. So don't be conned into thinking that just because the Soviet experiment was a disaster, as it always deserved to be, uh, unless I think you were Eric Hobsbawm, who rather liked it, uh, just because it went wrong, don't think that, that discredits and makes a failure of the whole of the left. Let's come on to economics. Uh, Mr. Montgomery, in an eloquent speech, has talked about the great victory of the right in economics. This presupposes that people like Milton Friedman and Margaret Thatcher, who was his vicar on earth in this country, were right-wing. Now, uh, <laughs> I knew Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, and I'm afraid I loved Mrs. Thatcher, and I was very thrilled to be at her funeral yesterday, not for the same reason some of you might have been, but <laughs> for, the, for, for the traditional reasons. Mrs. Thatcher was not right-wing. Mrs. Thatcher was a Gladstonian liberal. There was nothing that Mrs. Thatcher did in her, in her 11 years as prime minister that Mr. Gladstone, or indeed Mr. Asquith, who I think were two of the finest prime ministers of our history, would have done themselves had they been in power. Mrs. Thatcher hated old-fashioned paternalist conservatism. You only have to see the brutal way in which she treated some of those old-fashioned conservatives who were in her cabinet to understand that I'm speaking the truth. She had no time for vested interests, whether they be on the left or the right. She believed in freedom. She looked at the old conservatives who ran her 
party until she got in charge of it. And indeed, the grammar school boys like Ted Heath, who imitated the Tory toffs of the 1940s and 50s, and saw people who were determined to keep everybody in their place. She was never determined to keep anybody in their place because she didn't keep in her place. She was a low middle class girl who did things that people from the low middle classes and indeed girls didn't do. Uh, she was, she had no time at all for that traditional conservatism. And the economic revolution that she wrought was nothing to do with being right wing. If we had been to do with being right wing, we'd still have had feudalist right wing paternalist conservatives running the country who believed in keeping the working class in their place and who happily called them the lower orders and wanted them to stay in a low place. Mrs Thatcher was nothing like that. She was a Gladstonian liberal, and the triumph of economics in the 20th century was a triumph of liberalism, not a triumph of conservatism. Now, I've wanted to ingratiate myself with you by quoting, I think it's Ho Chi Minh, although Mehdi will come in with a point of information if I'm about to misquote. You're on the same side. <laughs> Don't stop him. <laughs> I think it was Ho Chi Minh who said it was too early to tell whether the French Revolution had been a success. Cho and I, thank you very much. Well, thank you for the information. I, I, I had meant to check this point earlier, but I was writing a piece of the Daily Mail, which, as you know, is a task in which are brooks of no interruptions. <laughs> and one thing we can, I think, though, take for granted from the French Revolution was that traditional definition of left and right, that the, the left were progressive and the right were reactionaries. Well, by any stretch of the imagination, almost nothing that happened in the 20th century in our country or in the world was reactionary. It was progressive. Uh, Helen has, with great uh, eloquence, outlined the triumph of feminism in the 20th century. We can also talk about the triumph of working class people, of ethnic minorities. Had we been alive 100 years ago, it was only probably white middle-class, well-to-do men like me who would have had any rights. And if I decided to be homosexual, I wouldn't have those either. I'd be in prison. So we have had an enormous advance in rights that have almost all been advanced by left-wing governments, most of them indeed in the 1960s when Roy Jenkins was Home Secretary in the Labour government. Helen has talked about the availability of divorce, abortion, the legalisation of homosexuality. Uh, the advance of not just women's suffrage, but equal rights for women, equal pay. Uh, all these things, actually, I think are, are good. I'm, I'm a believer in freedom. Uh, but these were not things that were proposed by most people on the right, and indeed were resisted by many people on the right. So we now live in a country where people do have the right to be themselves, irrespective of their race, their colour, their creed, their sexual orientation, their gender. Nothing matters. And that is the triumph of the left. But there are other triumphs of the left about which I'm less happy. The creation of a client state, which Gordon Brown seemed to make it his business to do. Uh, I know he wasn't technically in the 20th century, well, only a bit, but he was in the new statesman century. And the left have created a welfare state, which is now uh, attempts are underway to dismantle it. But we live in a world of welfareism. We live in a world of clientels, political clientels. And that is one of the most standing uh, monuments to the victory of the left in the last hundred years. On an international stage, we live in a world of post-imperialism, apart from the Americans who let to learn that lesson, but they will, don't worry. Um, <laughs> and I do hope without anybody else blowing anybody up there. Uh, but 
we live in a world where individual nations that used to be run by white middle-class men and are run by the people who were born there and live there and whose families have lived there for thousands of years, um, they have the right to self-determination. Uh, we no longer go around, uh, we being the, the European powers, the Americans as they are different, telling people uh, who live in third world countries uh, what they should do and how they should do it. And that, again, is a great victory for the left because it was the right in this country and elsewhere in Europe that saw an empire uh, more or less as a form of willy-waving. And uh, they, saw, they saw countries that didn't have an empire, certainly before the First World War, you know, poor old, um, uh, poor old Italy, for example, uh, as having an advanced sense of penis envy. Mussolini, of course, had this very badly, which is why he went into Abyssinia. Um, he, he, he tried to uh, re-masculate himself, and, he, and uh, you know, eventually he failed. So we live in a world that is, uh, as the Daily Mail calls it so often politically correct, but a world in which I'm very pleased to say everybody has the right to be him or herself, uh, where countries are no longer run by imperial powers but can run themselves, uh, and where there is a, a large measure of self-determination both for uh, individuals about how they live their lives and countries about how they live theirs. And I'm afraid that very little of that has been promoted by or achieved by the right. It's been achieved by the left. We live in a country that is still a welfare state. We live in a country that is infested with regulation. Regulations, as you know, are not invented to protect people. They're invented to provide jobs for people. And that is, the, uh, that is very much the way in which um, our government functions. Education was touched on earlier. Very little that's been done in the field of education, um, certainly in the universities, has been done by right-wing governments. Uh, it has been done by people who didn't want uh, working-class people to stay in their place. It's been done by people who wanted them to have the same opportunities to exercise their brains as everybody else. So the equal opportunities that we all have, the meritocracy in which we live, is a liberal left invention. And I make no complaint about this. But I do find it very hard to understand how anybody can stand up with a straight face and say that the right won the 20th century because the world in which we live was created almost entirely by the left. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. That went down very well with the audience. Um, Ruth Porter, your turn. Good evening. The left didn't win the 20th century. How could it have? Time after time, when you look at the events of the century, what you find is that the facts of the matter vindicated the right. What I'm going to do is go through and take you on a whistle-stop tour around the world during the century to try and show that. From the failure of Sweden's socialist experiment, many <laughs> China becoming capitalist, the left lost not only the terms of the debate, but their, sh their shoddy anthropology was also exposed. So how do we define left and right? Well, I want to go deeper than has been done so far. I want to look at the assumptions of the right and the assumptions of the left. The right suggests that we're all unique, that we thrive the best when we're embedded in a social network, that freedom's important for human dignity, for enterprise, for opportunity, for responsibility, for community and for culture that we experience freedom most fully when we exercise moral agency and we voluntarily reach out to others, when we use our creative talents to build constructively. The left, on the other hand, 
suggests that we're a product of economic, cultural, and social forces, ones that are beyond our control, but we're at our best when outcomes are equal and the ability to exercise choice and take responsibility is removed from us by the state. So, looking at that, how did the left then fail? Well, what I'm going to argue is that they lost the terms of the debate, that practically their ideas, based on those assumptions, were found to be defective, and that in this they failed to accomplish their goal. By the end of the 20th century, what no one could be in doubt of was that strong, vibrant societies, ones that are full of opportunity and meaning, are created by free enterprise. Government solutions cannot build life in the institutions in which people live their day-to-day -day life. It no longer is viable to see the state as the, as the embodiment of the interests of society. The role of the states, instead, to order and protect the vibrant energies of human activity. Who with a straight face could argue after the 1980s that the state could drive a national economy. Regulate it? Sure. Stimulate it? Maybe for short periods, but only with a massive detriment to the longer term. The left didn't just lose the terms of the debate on the economy, though. It also forgot that political power is coercive and therefore limited. We heard about the welfare state. Well, yeah, the state can feed, it can house, it can clothe, and it can train. But it, what it can't do is it can't nurture. And the 20th century proved this. Where government-imposed solutions dominated, destruction and emptiness followed. The lesson of the century was that market assumptions are what transform lives. So, going through, looking at practically where these ideas of the left were shown to be defective. By the end of the 20th century, where were the societies that backed state control? North Korea, left as the most extreme example, was a country where people couldn't even feed themselves. <laughs> Consider the US and the USSR over the Cold War period. The reason the US went from strength to strength was because its driving engine was never government. It was private enterprise and innovation. The USSR, on the other hand, ended up facing economic collapse. Look at China. It wasn't central planning that lifted around 600 million people, almost <coughs> half its population, out of poverty in the last two decades of the century. It was the creation of a market and the recognition that individual enterprise is what drives growth. And they achieved growth, growth of almost 10% a year. Of course, they've still got further to go. It was those who used to do the central planning that have become the wealthiest. But they need a market in ideas as well as goods and services. This is far more likely to come from people demanding it now, driving from the grassroots upwards than from something imposed centrally. Look at India. Again, poverty rates absolutely slashed. It's projected that by 2015, less than a quarter of their population will be living in poverty. Again, it's economic growth from the private sector, which is directly responsible for this, not government programs. Time and time, that's the lesson repeated around Asia. It's not just about economic transformation, though. Look at access to sanitation in Africa, places like Uganda. Look at education in Kenya, in Ghana. This has been delivered by the growth of entrepreneurial civil society, not by mass government programs. Sweden, 
held up as an exemplar of the left. They saw a huge expansion in the state in the second half of the last century. It had a devastating impact on their economy. By 1993, they'd fallen to being the 14th richest industrialized country from fourth 20 years earlier. By the last decade of the 20th century, what we saw Sweden doing was working hard to unravel its socialist reforms. We saw them bring in choice. We saw them use the private sector in health, in education, in pension reform, and we saw them starting to pull back the state. Look at what happened in Britain in the 80s. Look at home ownership. Look at closed shops like the city opened up. Look at whole industries privatized. Not only did this economically drive opportunity, but socially it created a more varied and pluralistic society. It created a place that was open to new innovation and much more socially tolerant. It created a place where women were freer to work. What was the left's own goal then? Well, the left's own goal at the start of the 20th century was to see collectivism dominate. They wanted to see countries run using state control and central planning. They failed. Instead of winning over countries, the classic left, the one I talked about, was utterly marginalized. Instead, what we call the left now are essentially egalitarian liberals. They're people who want government action simply to soften the edges of free exchange of the right that I outlined at the beginning. The whole tendency of the last century was in the direction of greater individualism, self-direction self and pluralism, and it was away from collectivism and central planning. The left cannot possibly claim to have achieved their goal. Ask any serious politician of the left now which of Thatcher's reforms she would reverse and you'll be met with silence. The last century vindicated the right. It showed its ideas to be the best ones. The left most definitely didn't win. Mr. Hassan is just having a glass of water, so I then I invite him to take his place at the at the podium or whatever we call it, lectern. So, and then I'm looking forward to hearing your views in in due course quite soon, actually. So, Mehdi, off you go. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Let me begin by saying that I never thought I'd find myself arguing on the same side of the debate, of any debate, uh, as the legendary Simon Heffer, uh, or as I know him in Baywatch terms, the Heff. Um, and at the same time, it's very difficult for me, very hard, to find myself arguing in opposition to the legendary baby-faced assassin of the left, Mr. Owen Jones. There are very few things that I disagree with Owen on. I mean, just the other day, my wife was watching him speak on television. She turned to me, she said, he's basically a less angry white version of you, isn't he? <laughs> Which I naturally took as a compliment. I'm not sure whether Owen will. Uh, but tonight, my friend, you've joined Tim and Ruth on the wrong side of the argument. Tonight, uh, you've allowed a defeatism and a cynicism so common on parts of the left to get the better of your normally impeccable judgment. <laughs> I'm here to make a very simple and narrow case. Over the course of the 20th century, this is the argument, the left succeeded in embedding a series of huge and historic political, economic, and social changes into the fabric of British society, which the right has either tried and failed to reverse or has reluctantly had to sign up to and absorb and agree with. 
That is the victory that we on our side of the house are referring to tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Helen has already reminded us of the advances made by the left on the social and moral fronts over the past hundred years, advances that that side of the house refused to even engage with. And let's just turn our attention now to something Ruth was talking about, the economic and political sphere. Let's push back a little bit against her whistle-stop tour of a rather fantastical universe in which North Korea is a model uh, for the left. <laughs> I prefer to stick to Britain. That's where we are. Just compare today to 100 years ago in the United Kingdom. Today, the British Empire is gone. Women have the vote. Minorities are protected by racial equality laws. The National Health Service exists. The welfare state exists. Uh, we have unemployment benefits, disability benefits, a raft of financial and health and safety regulations that drives papers like the Daily Mail up the wall. The national minimum wage, free and comprehensive education for 93% of all pupils, the Climate Change Act, an international aid budget that you can be proud of. Never forget either that the state pension was introduced under a, Labour gov under a left-wing government in 1908. Child benefit was introduced under a left-wing government in 1946. The Elizabethan poor laws were only abolished under a left-wing government in 1948. And never forget, we only won the World Cup under a left-wing government in 1966. No one, no Tory, no right-winger, not George Osborne, not Ian Duncan Smith, not Paul Dacre, not Tim Montgomery, no one, not one of them would dare try and change any one of these things, would openly try and turn back the clock to a social protection-free Victorian-style Britain. To say we have a consensus on these issues is a gross understatement. In fact, where the right has Point been successful... Point of information. Please. But, Mehdi, has, Mehdi, you say that... Um, you say that on welfare and health that no-one would dare to change things. If you look at the welfare reforms which are happening at the moment, they're some of the most popular reforms which the government's pursuing. The reality is the, reali the reality is that on the terms of debate, the left is well, conceding. That point. They, are the making they are making welfare reforms. No one's denying those Thanks, welfare Rick, reforms. Yeah. They're certainly not popular. And of course, they're not being conducted with any kind of openly stated aim to get rid of the welfare state. In fact, the government that that side tends to support, apart from Owen, uh, goes out of its way to say it's not abolishing welfare, it's not getting rid of the social security net. These things are embedded. In fact, where the right has been successful over the past 100 years, it's been successful by operating under the radar, by hiding its real aims and ambitions. In May 2010, for example, on the Andrew Marshall show on the eve of a general election, which he couldn't win because this isn't a conservative country, David Cameron said, and I quote, any cabinet minister who comes to me and says, here are my plans, they involve frontline reductions, will be sent back to their department to go away and think again. Why did he say that? Why did he tell that huge porky pie? <coughs> Why didn't he just say, we plan to cut public spending, we plan to roll back the state, we plan to bring the private sector in to run hospitals, schools, welfare? Because he knew that in modern social democratic Britain, the public would not tolerate it, would not agree agree with it, would not vote for it. Take the NHS, perhaps the purest expression of explicitly left-wing socialist principles. Government-run, taxpayer-funded, free at the point of use, the biggest employer in the UK. Now, some lefties, Owen included, have rightly pointed to the fact that the Conservative-led coalition is trying to privatise the NHS by stealth. Indeed it is. The key point, the key phrase in that sentence, by stealth. Why are they doing it covertly? Why are they doing it under the radar? Why are they doing it in a complicated bureaucratic fashion? Because they know that the public doesn't buy it, doesn't want the privatisation in the NHS, doesn't want the dismantlement of the National Health Service, doesn't want an outsourcing of all those services. They know they don't have a mandate for these free market reforms that people like Ruth like to celebrate. Ladies and gentlemen, I just came back... 
I just came back from Texas. Right, and that I just, just one other quick, ago. really quickly. Very quickly. You talk about these things like these public services, things like education, things like healthcare. Yeah. The reality is that it was a left-wing government, it was Tony Blair, who was responsible for bringing market reforms into those areas. But, but the NHS exists, it's there, no one's getting rid of it, and we'll come on to the NHS in a little bit more detail. Let me just say this first. I just came back from two weeks in Texas. There's a state, there's a country where the left has lost. No doubt about it. <laughs> they never had a proper welfare state to begin with. Their healthcare system is a joke. And their right-wingers talk proudly and openly about dismantling the state, privatising the whole damn government, rolling back the frontiers, getting rid of entitlements like social security. The reason there's no Tea Party-style movement like that in this country, even though people at the IEA may want to start one up, is because here in this country, everyone knows the political centre of gravity is to the social democratic centre-left, not to the libertarian right. Despite 11 years of Thatcher, 10 years of Blair, 3 years of Cameron, there's still no appetite for slashing the state, there's still no appetite for ditching free healthcare or education, or abandoning the basic responsibilities that we have towards one another. For the past few weeks, we've been arguing about Margaret Thatcher's legacy. Some of us are pretty Thatchered out. But let me point out two things. Public spending as a share of GDP averaged around 40% over the course of Thatcher's 11 years in office. No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't get it below 35% in any single year of those 11 years. As for tax revenues as a share of GDP, the so-called tax burden, that evil mark of a left-wing society, under Mrs. T's watch, it actually went up from 34% to 35% where it still stands today. So I find it astonishing to find so many lefties buying into this right-wing myth that Thatcher changed the face of our economy and society forever. Remember, Ruth, Thatcher was the one who said that the NHS is safe in our hands. Why did she say that if she was winning the argument on the issue? Why did she have to make that pledge? Why did her Chancellor, Nigel Lawson go out and say that the closest thing the English have to a national religion is the National Health Service. He didn't say that the free market was the closest thing that the English have to a national religion. He said the NHS is the closest thing that we have. In fact, when the British public are asked time and again what institution makes them most proud to be British, they pick the NHS. It beats the monarchy and the armed forces every single time. And yet we lefties still complain that the public are not on our side. Now you might say, you might say public attitudes are changing. They're shifting to the right. People are less interested in redistribution. They're they're more uh, anti the state. You might say that, you'd be wrong, but you could say it. <laughs> a recent YouGov poll published in The Guardian found that 52% of Brits support redistribution of income across the income scale. It found that 54% of Brits support more money being spent on the poor and the unemployed, even if it means their taxes going up. Another YouGov poll published yesterday found 61% of voters agreed that big public utilities, including energy and water, should be brought back under public control. And of course, there's long been... There's long, been a big, there's long been a big majority for renationalization of the railways. The truth is that the rights view of a small state and a privatized society populated by selfish, self-interested individuals just doesn't match up to the reality of modern Britain. We are a civilized, social democratic nation because the left, by the skin of its teeth, admittedly, won the big social and political arguments of the 20th century. That's why we lefties need to stop being so negative, so pessimistic, so self-destructive, so full of self-loathing. Let's hold our heads up high, Owen. Take pride in our victories. <laughs> yes, we've lost some battles along the way. Owen's going to tell us about some of them. But almost everything that is good and decent and just and fair and humane in our society, whether it's free healthcare and education, whether it's support for the elderly, whether it's the minimum wage or equality laws, is testimony to the fact that overall we lost some battles but we won the war. It wasn't a big victory. It wasn't an easy victory. It may not even be irreversible. 
But the point is, it was a victory nonetheless. The right lost the 20th century. Progressives won. The historical evidence is very clear. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I beg to propose this motion to you all. And I urge you, fellow lefties especially, just tonight, throw caution to the wind. <laughs> Lift your chin up. Vote yes. You know it's the right thing to do. Thank you, Mary. It's a fine um, rhetorical performance. I saw you applauding during that. I, I always, always applaud my good friend. <laughs> Owen Jones. Even when he's completely wrong. <laughs> Owen Jones, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Medi, Medi, Medi. Honestly, the Medi Meister General. Seriously, friends, who would have thought it? Standing here, uh, standing against my good friend Medi. If I could make a speech entirely consisting of Medi Hassan tweets, I would do just that. And here I am. Instead, on the same side is Tim Montgomery, one of the most thoughtful and intelligent spokespeople for Britain's increasingly swivel-eyed, morally bankrupt rights. <laughs> so to begin, I'm not suffering. I'm not suffering from some perverse Stockholm syndrome. I'm not here to prostrate myself at the feet of my fellow panellists, the vanquished to the vanquishers. What I'm trying to do, and this is the point I'd make, in all the work that I do, I have one aim, and I should make out that, make it clear, as a socialist, I know the role of the individual is limited and modest in history. But it is this, to consign the right to the scrap heap of history where they belong. But friends, we're going to be brutally honest, that would mean swapping places. Because if we are to rebuild the left, and that is what is needed, it means rebuilding it from rubble and ruin. And that needs a sober, a sober assessment of where we are. And that's where Medi's let us down. Because Mehdi is a, a very sober and intelligent man. No points of objection, you see. Everyone agrees. But the point is, he's letting us down because in this naivety, in this dream world of the left winning the 20th century, we will not be able to rebuild ourselves as a force in this century now. Now, the 20th century had many lessons. One was the almost infinite malleability of humanity, a limitless capacity to do wonderful things and to perpetrate the most unimaginable horrors. But it's also true, as has been said very eloquently, at the climax of the century, remain standing many achievements. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Of the left. Uh, the welfare state, pensions, free education till the age of 18, the NHS, higher taxes on the rich, not just votes for women, but basic rights enshrined in law. Billions of people liberated from colonial tyranny. As a gay man a century ago, I would have been locked up for who I love, but now have equality before the law with my straight friends. But these, as all social gains, and this is the important point, as all, with all social gains, all of these were won not with the goodwill and generosity of those above, but through the struggle and sacrifice of those below. But other than the emancipation of women and minorities, which I will come to, all of these are examples of what you could call 
past capital. These are gains won when the left existed as a coherent force with a mass base. By the end of the 20th century, the idea of a coherent alternative to free market capitalism, let alone capitalism itself, seemed all but unimaginable. As Frederick Jameson put it, it is now easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Now, it's worth pointing out that the less fortunes had many high points and nadirs throughout the whole 20th century. When my great uncle was on the football team of the Independent Labour Party, when they left the Labour Party in disgust in the 30s, he, he would have denounced me as a right-wing deviationist, I'm sure. But at the time, things looked bleak indeed. The Conservatives had just won a landslide election victory. Labour was nearly wiped out as an electoral force. Fascism wiped out the left across Europe and ended up with thousands, millions, if not socialists, being slaughtered and imprisoned. But after World War II, it was the traditional right that seemed all but defeated. The experience of the Great Depression, wartime planning, the rise of the left, everywhere forced them into catastrophic retreats. A host of free market economists and academics, they met in this sleepy Swiss town, Montbellerin, and they issued an alarmist statement which said, the central values of civilization are in danger. They said it was fostered by a decline in private property and the competitive market. It was the likes of my fellow panelists at the time, not myself, who were regarded as cranks languishing on the fringes. Indeed, in 1955, Tony Crosland, one of the figureheads of what was then Labour's right, which looks a lot different from New Labour, he wrote a pamphlet, a triumphalist book called The Future of Socialism. And it said, you could sum it up in, in two words, or three, depending on how you phrase it, we've won. Now, he wrote this, he wrote in it, the Conservatives now fight elections largely on policies which 20 years ago were associated with the left and repudiated by the right. He mentioned social services, even the success of the nationalised industries. The Tory right were despondent at the time. In the fine print of policy and especially in government, the Tory party merely pitched camp in the long march to the left. Those were the words of Margaret Thatcher herself. She called post-war politics a socialist ratchet. But this was the period, of course, of the greatest economic growth, the greatest rise in living standards that this country has ever seen. But all of this changed dramatically in the 70s. The post-war consensus began to collapse, convulsed by the, the end of what was known as the, the Bretton Woods system, the oil shock of 1973, inflation sweeping the Western world and an ever-falling share of profit. Even then, many on the left, including my own family, were in full-on triumphalist mode. As the right-wing writer Peter Oborn put it at the time, for a while it was wholly unclear which side would win, and indeed for long periods it appeared the left was in the ascendancy. But the new right ably, and give them some credit for what they did, they took this crisis to their own advantage. Thatcherism, faced with a bitterly opposed, uh, divided opposition, demolished the social democratic Consensus, the trade union movement, long the backbone of the left, was smashed by mass unemployment, anti-union laws and strike defeats. But there were two other factors. Point of information. Would you accept that Margaret Thatcher did indeed destroy the consensus of that time, but she didn't destroy the institutions that you and I cherish, whether it's the NHS, whether it's our school system, whether it's universities, whether it's the welfare state? She didn't succeed in doing that. No, the wind was blowing and has been blowing ever since 
in the direction of the right. And the key point there is these were institutions which were founded when we were strong, the left was strong. Now you couldn't just dismantle them overnight, but the direction of travel is clear. And that is the dismantling, whether by stealth, whether overtly of those institutions. But there were other factors, the form of globalization encouraged by neoliberalism, which seemed that even a moderate social democratic government would be pummeled by a flight of capital. But above all else, it was the end of the Cold War. Now, many people, and I would hopefully say the vast majority on the left, abhorred everything Stalinist totalitarianism stood for. But its collapse was spun as the end of any alternative to free market capitalism. It was a triumphalism summed up by Francis Fukuyama's The End of History. As the US neoconservative Midge decked a bullet in 1990, it's time to say we've won, goodbye. Now across the world, social democratic parties shifted to the right. The old communist parties dissolved. African national liberation movements like the ANC ditched all the socialist policies they had. It was as though the left was sliced off the world's political spectrum. And so we ended up in this country with a new political settlement, as Attlee had established one before, where all parties accepted the fundamental underlying principles of Thatcherism, free markets, privatization, weak unions, low taxes on the rich. Yes, we've had the emancipation of minorities and women, but as we've seen, the right have co-opted and co-opted those things and still remain the right. Tim Montgomery accepts the right of people like me to get married, but he remains a right-wing conservative. You can believe black people, women, gay people, transgender people should be treated equally and still defend a society in which wealth and power are concentrated in the hands of a few at the top. A coherent vision of a new society run by working people and the interests of working people, of social need, not private profit, of democracy expanded to the economy and the workplace, as well as politics, of collective interest rather than rugged individualism. That is what was killed off by the end of the 20th century. And that is why, and I don't want to end in a defeatist note, which uh, is looking that way. <laughs> because friends, we face the biggest crisis of capitalism for generations. It is predicted for the first time since World War II, the next generation will be poorer than the last. This is the biggest sustained decline in living standards since my gran was born in the early 1920s. The need for a coherent alternative is more pressing than it's ever been. And at the moment, we've got lots of anger, but a lack of hope. And that is where the left comes in, to offer that coherent alternative. And I'm going to end by quoting Percy Bysshe Shelley, a poet I know some of you, I hope, will be very fond of. And he said this, Rise like lions after slumber, in unvanquishable number. Shake your chains to earth like dew, which in sleep had fallen on you. Ye are many, they are few. Friends, we lost the 20th century and we are still suffering the consequences today but we have a responsibility to win the next. So let's start doing it. But friends, tragically, vote against this motion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to Owen Jones and to all of the speakers for their eloquence, commitment, and indeed their humor. So let's hear from you now. Who would like to say, ask a few questions, say a few words? Try to keep it tight, so I'd like to hear as many from you as many as possible. So this gentleman here, and then this gentleman follow. I'm not just going to choose a message. Come on. 
So, hi. So this is mainly for Owen. Um, you at the beginning of the twenty-first century, you had no state pensions, no welfare state, no NHS, nothing like that. Your argument seems to be they got particularly strong, but now they're getting weaker, and therefore the left lost the twentieth century. Looks to me as if we were better at the end of a hundred years than we were at the start. So you're saying losing pretty high there. Um, Aaron, do you want to come back very briefly on that? Yeah, uh, my point is the left as a coherent force with a coherent alternative to what exists was all but wiped out as a political force. What we're talking about there are the remnants, if you like, of what was achieved when the left did exist as a coherent force. And the reason they're all being chipped away now is because there's no countervailing pressure from the left. The right is so triumphalist, so lacking in opposition, that even the traditional figures, the parties of the left, are themselves complicit in the dismantling of their own achievements. Isn't the, isn't the, doesn't that mean that the best argument you can offer tonight, generously, charitably, is that the left lost the last 25 years of the 20th century? Well, which I don't concede, but even if I were to concede that, that would still give me 75 years in victory. <laughs> You know, as I put it, it's close of play, Mehdi. And close of play, we got our, we got our asses yeah. kicked. No, they're 4-1 down. down. They're 4-1 down. Hi. Yes, hi. Good evening. I just want to thank the panel for a very lively and interesting debate and for the creation of a new intellectual construct, which I think I'll tre treasure forever, the Hef. Um, <laughs> but I just, want to, I just want to basically say that the, while the debate was interesting, it seemed to be a kind of a house of straw men. We have one panelist who is arguing that North Korea was a typical political structure of the left. We have another who argues that the key preoccupation of the left wing was to wage a trade union conspiracy against the electorate. We have another person who argued that you know, Labour created a client state, despite the fact that actually private enterprise benefits greatly from public sector contracts. So it seems like we have quite a, a warped view of what left and right constitutes in this debate, which kind of made it harder to come to any kind of consensus or agreement between the two parties. Okay. Does anyone want to come back on that? Can I just make, make I think the gentleman might have misunderstood what I meant by the client state. What I meant by it was the traditional Daily Mail definition, which therefore must be right, um, <laughs> which is that the, the, the state provides not just work, but also a generous system of benefits to people, more or less as a bribe, so that they will vote. And, and I think that's very much what Gordon Brown did. I mean, Gordon Brown was an abominably bad prime minister, and he got 258 seats at the last election, which was a brilliant result for a man who was that bovinely stupid as prime minister. And, and that's because he had a huge clientele who voted for him. Just quickly, I mean, in terms of this idea of a client state, if socialism still exists in this country, it's socialism for the rich. Uh, banks bailed out by taxpayers, private companies like gay for re funded by the, by the state... These tax credits, which are basically subsidies for bosses paying low wages, housing benefits, which are subsidies for private landlords charging extortionate rents, uh, wealthy individuals having tax relief on their pensions. There's your client state. It's socialism for the top and capitalism, red in teeth and claw for everybody else. Well, the banks were bailed out. <laughs> the banks were bailed out by Gordon Brown, who went and said he saved the world by doing so. I mean, hardline free, hardline free marketeers like me would have let, would have let uh, RBS and HBOS go under to teach them a lesson and to teach their idiotic um, um, executives a lesson for not doing their job properly. Thank you, Simon. I want to bring in our, our first woman here, please. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'd like to ask, obviously, tonight you've looked at the question of whether the left or the right won the 20th century. Listening to the debate... Um, it seems, what I took from it was a consensus that socially 
the left had won. We ended up with a more socially liberal society. And economically, the right had won in that we'd ended up with a more free market society. Um, if you put those things together, you end up with liberalism. And despite the um, parliamentary collapse of the Liberal Party over the 20th century, um, could we say that the centre won the 20th century? Um, Tim? I think you would have to say liberalism definitely won the 20th century. I suppose most of us would probably agree with that, either free market liberalism or social liberalism. And actually, um, two of the uh, panellists today have spoken about my views on gay marriage. And you, of course, can see gay marriage as a reform that's about equality and justice. But you can also see it as a conservative victory. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, wrote about this recently quite powerfully. And he said, freedom has won almost on every reform for a very long time. And marriage is actually an institution where people choose to give up certain freedoms in return for belonging to an institution where they're bound to loyalty. And that, for me, is an incredibly conservative um, result. And actually, gay marriage is interesting if you see it in that sense, and I understand not everyone would, but it's interesting as one of the very few examples where conservatism was a very clear winner against liberalism. But liberalism absolutely won the 20th century. I would disagree with that because I think you say, I mean, I can say that you could say that the, you know, the institution of marriage is conservative, but it's fundamentally about whether or not you believe people should get married. It's whether or not they should have the, the right to and the option to and they should be treated the same. And that is a left-wing victory. You see, but I think a lot of the premises tonight, as a, you know, we're debating, but it's a gross caricature of what the right is. In other words, the right do not oppose every form of social protection. We don't oppose every form of equality. That isn't... If you want to beat your opponents, you don't completely misrepresent them. I believe in a welfare... You don't misrepresent them, says the man who said that only the right believes in prosperity and family values. Um, (laughs) What I think I said was that uh, the Conservatives believe in a form of family as a better provider of welfare than the left. That is what I said, perhaps not as eloquently as I, as I should have done. But the, the reason why the left will ultimately lose is because their definition of defeating poverty isn't a limited welfare state focused on those that are genuinely needing. It's a sprawling, unaffordable welfare state. And that's where we've reached at the end of the 20th century. The left increased and increased the state to a point where we cannot compete with more lightly taxed countries and that is why the left is failing and the right's victory on economics is just the beginning of the right's victory because you cannot compete with emerging economies with the kind of left-wing vision of the world how you can say the sentence how you can say the sentence the right's victory on economics after september 2008 Uh, is beyond me gentlemen the white jacket has a microphone i'm going to ask you so and then i'll bring some more of you It's been a very kind of British, even kind of European uh, centric debate. But surely if you look at the beginning of the century and compare it to the end internationally, the left's victories are there in terms of liberation from imperialism and colonialism. And the two great last state funeral icons of, uh, of this country, Churchill and Thatcher, were both on the wrong side of history. Churchill arguing against Indian independence and Mandela and uh, Thatcher condemning Mandela as a terrorist. So bringing it up even to Owen's end of the 20th yes, century. There's more complexity emerging on Margaret Thatcher and South sorry? Africa. Sorry? It's more complex, Margaret Thatcher and South Africa. And you'll, more will come out from Charles Moore's book at the weekend. And, well, I look, for, I look forward to that. But uh, it, surely the, it, the left was backing those movements 
anti-apartheid and anti-colonialism. Yeah, yeah. And the right were very much Johnny come late this. Thank yeah, you very yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Does anyone want to come back on, on anti-apartheid movement, colonialism, anti-imperialism? Medi or anybody? Hi. Um, well, one of the questions I wanted to ask, and so Owen touched on it as, uh, quite a lot, was the sort of way that the left had sort of run out of offering a coherent alternative. And I, I wanted to sort of ask the whole panel what they thought the influence of the collapse of the Eastern Bloc and the breakup of the Soviet Union, what, what was the influence of that on the British left? Although the British left has always had, a, a, at best, an ambivalent relationship with the Soviet Union. But I just wanted to see what all the members of the panel thought about that. Founders of the New Statesman, were, um, the Webs, were great supporters of the new, uh, Soviet Union. And, uh, and indeed, in, in some ways, very, it's a very embarrassing part of our history. <laughs> So, that, so there was an ambivalence, but there was a support too. Fellow traveling was a, was a thing on the left. So does anyone want to come back on that? I would, I would say if you read the centenary edition of the New Statesman uh, and see the section on who won the left, who won the 20th century, uh, Matthew Dancona, former editor of the Conservative Supporting Spectator, makes an interesting point. He says actually the fall of the Eastern Bloc actually helped the centre-left in this country because it helped decontaminate them. It helped people like Neil Kinnock get away from the usual charge of being a stooge or a fellow traveller of the Soviet Union. So you could argue in tactical terms it didn't harm the left in that sense because it enabled us to point out that we never supported Soviet totalitarianism. Go, go to, begin to people with. in Poland and Czech Republic Republic and other places that suffered under communism. They weren't celebrating um, some Neil Kinnock or anyone when uh, they were being... It was Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, as they saw as their heroes. What's, the right, was, the right was the ally of the, ally of the freedom movements in the, um, behind the Iron Curtain, not the left. That's the left cozies up to those regimes. Why was it a Labour Prime Minister who built the nuclear bomb then? You appeased those regimes with your nuclear deterrence. It was the right that forced the end of the Berlin Wall. they persecuted social democrats for 50 years after the end That defended the countries with gulags. It was the left. No. Yeah, I'm not sure I can follow that at all, but um, I, I, was, I was just going to say, isn't the problem here that the proponents have really conflated what um, being on the left means with things like equality and liberalism, which really lots of you spent half your speeches talking about? And actually, if you were a person on the left in the 20th century, it wasn't about gay rights, it wasn't about um, equality for women primarily, it was a battle of ideology between um, you know, models of, of, of uh, economy, and it was about fighting as, as a left against for a sort of um, sort of socialist alternative or fighting for a different means of organizing wealth. And actually, if you look at where the left is now, they talk not about um, that. They talk about responsible capitalism. And they talk about changing the system that we undoubtedly have, which is a capitalist state. Is that for uh, you state. a mission of defeat? 
Absolutely, I'm on the left, but I think it's yeah. I think it's foolish to accept that that so we won in any way. Capitalism safer for the world, the kind of Keynesian. Yeah, it shows where we are. It's it's not about it's not about changing it. And actually, the battle was always against capitalism. We we don't fight that anymore because we know we we lost okay. it. I think. Um, where are we on the microphone? This gentleman here, please. Hi, I'd like to ask the panel whether they think there's in any sense distinctively right and left positions on civil liberties issues, and if there are, then which of those positions won the 20th century? Well, uh, I'm, I, I'm with you. I have an enormous problem with Labour's civil liberties position, in fact, things like the DNA database, but things like the spread of CCTV. I think it is fundamentally incredibly illiberal position, and that is an incredibly complicated subject then, because then I would side much more with the Conservatives on that. So I don't think you can split that. Again, we talked about this idea about the triumph of liberalism. This is an issue that's a liberal issue rather than a straight left-right one for me. Okay, we've got some time left. So we're, you holding the microphone, please. Yep. Um, I was just kind of coming on to Tim Montgomery's point about the family. Um, I come from a teenage single mother family, um, and I think the welfare state has enabled her to bring me up properly and has supported her. And you say that um, welfare is best served through the family, but ultimately that is the woman. And the welfare state has liberated women from the position of only having unpaid care work, um, care work instead of paid positions. So I think I'd just like to see what your point is on that as well. Okay. Did you, um, were you one who believed that the left won the 20th century then? No, I've You've changed your position. Yeah. Good. Oh, wow. So um, let's push towards the back a little bit. We've privileged the front. Yes, Charlotte, the gentleman here with his hand raised in your row. Yep. Thank you. Um, I just want to support Owen against Mehdi, because Mehdi made a great speech. But one thing he said was the left won the argument. And the point is, politics is not just conducted at the level of argument, it's conducted at the level of interests and power. And all the things that Mehdi listed as achievements of the left, the NHS, the welfare state, and so on and so on, were a product of a labor movement. And that is what is missing that's what was destroyed in the 80s. You look at trade union rates and all this sort of stuff. And it's because of its absence today that the coalition can peel away at those achievements without significant opposition. So I think we need to look not just at ideas, but at interests. And on those, but, the right one, I think. But, but uh, what I would say in response is, in my great speech, as you put it, I, <laughs> I did point out that I'm not saying it's irreversible. If, I mean, if we want to have a debate about this current government, Owen and I will line up together against Tim tomorrow. Uh, it's not about that. It's about what happened over the past 100 years. It's about, you know, as Helen Simon and I pointed out, go back to 1909 or 1913 or whatever date at the start of the 20th century you want to pick. Look at what society was like then, the, the market economy, uh, you know, rights for workers, social freedoms, all of those things. Fast forward 100 years and tell me who won that debate. For me, it's seems very clearly the left won that debate because the right is not trying to turn back all of those things and where it has tried it has failed but it's not just about the institutions is it? it's about the rhetoric as well I thought it was really interesting today that you had the results came out for London for people's ability to get their kids into the school that they've chosen and you saw people it didn't matter whether they were on the left or the right you saw parents saying actually People, families should be able to send their kids to the school that they want to send them to. That yeah, idea of choice... That's not a left-right position. I want to... No, but that idea of choice that. within those public Resisted by the trade unions and the left parties of the left. Okay. But if there are only a finite number of places, the schools have to, have to limit those, those places. Which is why, if you look at 
that's why Blair looked at things like academies. You know, the, under Blair, what he did was he, he changed the terms of debate. He said, let's have diversity. Let's have academies. Let's have, you know, different options for people. And let, let people choose. Create more schools. Create more let schools. people choose. And different schools. Okay. Um, where are we on the microphone? The gentleman there. Hi. Um, I think the is to the left. We can't. You need to move the mic away from him. Just shout. Okay, I think the biggest challenge to the left is from sides who claim to be from the left. Sorry, thank you. I think the, the biggest challenge to the left is from sides who claim to be um, from the left. As mentioned before, the former Soviet Union, um, the New Labour, for example, I don't know what's that going to do with the left. Uh, after the um, Arab Spring, funny enough, the biggest uh, opponents of democracy are people, are left-wingers in Tunisia and in Egypt. They're against democracy. They're using the uh, corporate media uh, to, um, you know, and you've got the left-wingers internationally siding with them. So you've got programs like Democracy Now, siding with the pro-dictatorship, with the corporate uh, media in Egypt and in Tunisia, with corrupt businessmen to promote them. Um, one successful model of the left, I think, is in South America. And that's the model I hope that we should follow if we're going to succeed. Thank you. Okay. Um, a lot of people have mentioned the defeat of the unions. Does anyone here believe the unions contributed to their own defeat in Britain during the 70s? <laughs> <laughs> or not? That's all right. You next, please. Hi. Um, it seems to me there's two ways we can measure whether the left has won um, in the 20th century. The first one we spend a lot of time on, which is in terms of outcomes for ordinary people, for working people, which I think we all agree are better now than they were 100 years ago. There's better, um, there's better quality of life, there's better, um, well, obviously, free education, healthcare, universal healthcare, welfare state. So in terms of outcomes for people, it was definitely the left has won the debate. And the second argument, which is Owen's argument, that the left-wing movement is weaker now than it was at the start of the 20th century, I just can't buy. Because if the Labour Party was formed officially in 1900, that was a very small, they exerted a very small amount of influence. And if you think yeah. about, I know that the left-wing movement has been diminished and dwindled and we need to start a new one and we need to start fighting back. But the position we're in now is still stronger than we were 100 years ago. Yeah. So in terms of that measurement as well, I think the left has won. But, can I respond? Anyone come back on that? Yeah, yeah it, the difference was at the beginning of the 20th century, the direction of travel was clear. Things were moving to the left. The left was expanding as a movement, the difference is this time, the left as a coherent force with an alternative to free market capitalism has all but been vanquished. You seem to be at the wrong debate. This is not a debate about whether the left is winning the 21st century. This no, is no, a debate okay. about whether at we the won end, the last the end of the years 20th years century, you're not reconciling At the end point. of the 20th century, it was even worse. The triumphalism of the right was even more profound. The direction of travel, that's the point. The winds were blowing dramatically <laughs> to the right at the end of the 20th century. But as Tony Blair stood on his first day in Downing Street with 110 or whatever it was female MPs, you think that was a moment of triumphalism for the right? Uh, well, in the sense that New Labour accepted all the key underlying principles of what Thatcherism stood for, tragically, yes, even though we did see, of course, in terms of the historic struggle for women's liberation throughout the 20th century. But as I say, even the right will now caught that. <laughs> Tim, do you want to come in on that? Just briefly, and um, not so much to do with the debate, but the, the, the question from the lady at the back, assuming that because ordinary working-class people had done well, that was a victory for the left. You know, that is a terrible problem for my party that you just automatically assume that, that our party is not why. interested in the <laughs> 
But actually, you look at the left now, and this is why I think a moral critique from, of, from the right of the left is incredibly important, is actually it is the left that want to leave the next generation in debt. You are the party that is defending the huge debts. Every Labour government... My troubling tuition fees, every, you mean? Every Labour government in history has left Quite debt, a lot of debt, unemployment and taxes higher. It is the left at the moment... Did, that did you see yesterday's unemployment figures, Tim? ...of the family, which is, uh, hurts the poor more than anything else. It is the left that puts the teacher unions before the interests of pupils. Again and again, the left has become detached from the moral purposes that it wants was associated with. Speech today, teachers may be having shorter holidays very soon and longer working days. Good. Because <laughs> teachers are underworked at the moment, everyone. Any teachers here? Yes. Yeah, what do you think about that? <laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> that, that is surely the most eloquent statement of the evening. Um, We've got about eight minutes, so let's try and get a few more questions in. Who's next? You, sir. Um, I just want to comment on... We, we touched upon the oxymoron of responsible capitalism in this debate. Um, I want to ask, direct this question at Mehdi and uh, Owen in particular. Uh, we talk about the need for... A, the, the imminent need for a replacement of free, uh, free market capitalism. What lessons could the left learn from the failed experiments of the Soviet empire and uh, the Maoist regime uh, to, to, to bring about this, this desperate change to replace the abomination that is capitalism. <laughs> well, just first, the, well, the lesson from those totalitarian states is don't set up mass-murdering totalitarian states, I'd imagine. <laughs> but, but the other point, in terms of the alternative, just quickly, the form of nationalisation we had in this country was top-down, bureaucratic, uh, didn't involve workers and the people who use those services. I'd like a new democratic form of ownership. Take our railways back into public ownership, but stick passengers and users on the boards to help run those services in the interests of people. Which doesn't sound very much like North Korea, as far as I know. A couple more, and then I just want to hear very briefly from each speaker again. Gentleman in the white shirt there, you've been very patient, so we'll go for you, sir, and then one other after that. Um, earlier, I can't remember who said it, but somebody accidentally slipped saying the West had won as opposed to the left. Um, but then in the debate, no one's really brought up how this, uh, how this conversation's happened in the USA, which, if anywhere, won the 20th century. It was the United States of America. And as Maddie said, um, in Texas, that this whole conversation of whether there should be health services or things like that just doesn't exist. But this is the most powerful country on earth. If the conversation was lost there, surely it's been lost, no matter what Britain has. I would, can I come back very briefly? I, would, I wouldn't dispute that. I would say that it depends what your, what your definition of victory is. If you say, did a country that manifestly is not left-wing become the most powerful country in the world? Yes. Uh, did it become the best place to live? Not necessarily. Dare I mention the Scandinavian countries? <laughs> <laughs> About them. My point being, it depends what your criteria of success is. The gentleman uh, with his hand with wearing the t has the tie. Thank you. Never been um, John Strafford. Um, if I may quote uh, Oliver Cromwell, um, <laughs> I beseech thee in the bowels of Christ, think it possible you may be mistaken. The left didn't win the last century, and the right didn't win the last century. The winners were the establishment. Those with power still have the power. Yeah. We have still got a rotten electoral system 
with a legislature, including the House of Lords, unelected by the people, unaccountable to the people. We still have a military. We still have a military industrial complex that enables us to build, to spend four billion pounds building aircraft carriers when there are no aircraft to go on them. We, we, we still are pumping subsidies to manufacturers of windmills when they won't work and produce energy when the wind's not blowing. No one's, no one's cheering now. And finally, we give £45 billion to the Royal Bank of Scotland and the fat bankers, the fat cat bankers that are there, not a single one of whom has been prosecuted for fraud and the poor are having to pick up the bill. This is what is the wrong with this country now. So that's had that gentleman's number. I also like your succinct answer. Was it bollocks? So, so you're on as well. Um, that was so good. We're going to have another question, I think. Who's next? There's a woman there. Um, is that a purple top? Yep. We're running out of time, but we'll keep, keep it going for a little bit longer. Um. Hi, I'm Romanian. Are you? Um, <laughs> I, almost, I almost said congratulations, but I didn't. Um, my great-grandfather worked for a very long time, and he had a bit of wealth when the left came in power. Um, he was thrown into prison, and uh, all the wealth was taken away from him just to set an example to the community um, of what would happen if they wouldn't agree with the left. Um, my grandparents couldn't go to school because they didn't have enough money. My parents uh, were affected by that as well. Um, so basically the education didn't really happen in that circumstance and their culture wasn't good enough. Um, and basically to me the left felt not only my great-grandparents but my grandparents and my parents and to be honest my generation as well. So. So for you, it's an emphatic defeat for the left. Yeah. yeah. But with, with respect, we've, we kind of have discussed this topic. I mean, I don't... Look, as Simon pointed out very eloquently in his address, you know, we on the left will take responsibility for Stalin if the right takes responsibility for Hitler. I mean, we're, we can't just bring these far-right dictators on either side and hold us in the middle responsible for them. I mean, I'm not responsible, and the left in this country is not responsible for Ceausescu and totalitarianism in Romania, no. uh, horrible and evil as it was. But that is not what we're debating tonight, to be fair. And I'd like to hear very briefly from each, each speaker again. Um, you choose. I think something that's been completely forgotten is that the, the, the conversation seems to have centred around Britain, but we do not exist in isolation. Our wealth is based also in a globalized world on the work of the people who produce the things we buy, the people all over the world who produce the things that we buy. If the left were to have won the 20th century, then read, proper redistribution of wealth would have happened more effectively globally. It remains as economically divided a world 
as it was a hundred years ago in many, many ways. There are still people working for, for pittances all over the world to produce the goods that we in the rich world enjoy. While that remains the case, globally, and we're part of a globalized world, the left cannot have won the 20th century. That. So very briefly, shall we hear from each of you again for, for a minute or so? Helen, do you want to start? A minute. Um, my final point was I'd just like to say, look at the structure of your life. Look at your life. Look at the way that you spend every day, every minute of every day. Margaret Thatcher might have or might not have claimed there was no such thing as society. There definitely is. I think we can all agree that. And the way that it operates has fundamentally changed because of the things that the left pursued and the things that the left championed. And that's why I proposed the motion. Simon? I wish I could fill a minute. I don't think I can either. I, I just want to reiterate that Margaret Thatcher was a liberal. She was not. She was She's not right wing. Pinko communist, practically. She, well, <laughs> she was not right wing. The, the the right wing strand in the Conservative Party from its formation in the 1850s through to its defenestration by her in 1979 was paternalist. It was feudalist. It believed in keeping people in their place. It did not believe in economic radicalism. That was Mr. Gladstone. That's why Gladstone left the Conservative Party and became a liberal, because he wanted to implement Adam Smith's views of, of economics in government, and the Conservative Party wouldn't have it. So it's a liberal left strain that, in economic and social terms, has dominated this country and the affairs of most of the world in the 20th century. I believe much of that actually has been for the good. Some of it is bad but the right cannot claim that they won. There is no evidence of it, because what they do claim as their victory is an economic victory that was won by liberals. The people who founded Ruth's Institute of Economic Affairs, none of them was conservatives. Arthur Selden, the most brilliant economist, was a Jewish boy from the East End who was a liberal candidate. Ralph Harris refused to sit on the conservative benches when Margaret Thatcher gave him a peerage because he wasn't a conservative. That's what free market economics in this country that's its legacy. That's what it is. It's from the Liberal Party. It's in the old Liberal Party of Gladstone, Asquith, and Joe Grimmond. It's nothing to do with the right. It wasn't their victory. It was a victory of liberalism. Simon, can I, think, can I just... It's slightly more complex than that. Wasn't it a combination of economic liberalism and social conservatism? Yeah, but I'm just talking about the, the way that the, the right claimed the economic victory of the 20th century. <laughs> it wasn't their victory. It was a liberal victory. Of course, you're right. Thatcherism was more complex. And the social elements of Thatcherism <clears> were, by and large... Um, right wing. But as, as somebody said, Margaret Thatcher voted to decriminalize homosexuality in the 1960s because she realized it was abominable to interfere into the private lives of, of, of ordinary men and women. And you know, she was at, at heart an individualist. It didn't do her any harm that people had homosexual relations, so why should she object to it? And so I mean, Thatcherism is not quite as it was painted. And I'm glad you mentioned Nelson Mandela. He used to go and see her quite frequently when he came to London, because there's a lot of that to come out and it will, I think, change her reputation dramatically. Um, Tim, do you want to come I, back I on? I just want to ask Simon Thatcher. if he doesn't think Margaret Thatcher was right wing. Who, who, who does he actually think is a right wing embodiment <laughs> of his of his views? Because by definition, you seem to have ruled out almost every politician uh, in the whole century no, here. No, um, no, 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 no. I mean, look, look. Just who, who is your right wing politician that would stand up for your values at the moment? What, what do you think my values are? I don't know anymore. Well, well no, but I mean. I, I'm, I'm not a conservative. I'm a liberal. I, I'm not a conservative. Didn't you try um, and stand for the Conservative Party once? No. No? No, no, never. 
Um, <laughs> no, no, that is a rumour put about by my enemies in order to discredit me. No, I'm a liberal. But if you, if you want some right-wing politicians in the 20th century, the Marquess of Salisbury, Donna Law, Baldwin, Churchill, they were right-wing. Macmillan, Eden, they were right-wing. Churchill was also very liberal, though, as well. I think you just... Well, he, your whole, your he, whole, your whole he walked around. You know, yeah, exactly. Your whole definition rules out anyone possibly yeah. being right achieving anything. Church I just don't understand. Churchill. That's why he's on our side of the debate. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Churchill's politics were informed, for the most part, in the first 40 years of his political career by his personal ambition. He left the Conservative Party in 1903 to join the Liberals, ostensibly on free trade, but because he saw the way the wind was blowing for Balfour's Conservative Party, which was a disaster. He left the Liberal Party when it, when it fell to pieces in 1922, was a constitutionalist for two years, then became a Conservative, because he saw the Liberal Party was finished. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm a great admirer of Churchill as a war leader, as a peacetime politician. He was a charlatan and a disaster. <laughs> he said you couldn't fill a minute. Statesman debate, you get some history, you get some nuance, unpredictability. Mehdi, do you want to say anything else? Can I ask in the interest of fairness that you take some opposition speech? Otherwise, they've got three speeches in a row before we vote. And you're, you're already losing, aren't you? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I defer on that issue. Owen. Um, well, look, I, both lovely people, but I did make a pact with Satan here. So the point I'm going to make... I love you too. Very, very, very nice Satans, but still. Um, but but the, point, the point is this. I wasn't trying to be defeatist. The point I was making in my speech is things change, and things change very dramatically and can change very quickly. The 1970s, the right thought the game was up. They thought they'd lost. They thought they'd lost forever. It was total despair on the part of the right. There was even talks of military coups in this country if the left were to come, uh, were to carry on in power. The point is, things change very quickly, and they will change quickly again. And the point I'd make to end is a rallying cry, because the reality oh, is, that's not you. <laughs> reality is, reality is. We are in the biggest crisis of capitalism for generations, and it's not sustainable. And working people, unemployed people, disabled people have been made to pay for a crisis they did not cause. We're the seventh richest country in, on earth, and as Save the Children pointed out, we've got parents choosing between heating their homes and feeding their children. Our cause on the left, our cause, and it is a cause, it's a mission, is to stand up for working people and the oppressed and all those without a voice, and to fight those who have wealth and power and to build a society that is running the interests of working people. And that cause, that mission, is more relevant now than it has ever, ever been. And those who want to fight for that sort of society don't need to get defeatist, and that wasn't my point. It's to say, yes, we got a hammering, but we've got a responsibility and a duty to fight back because in generations to come, many of you will be asked, what did you do to stop what is happening to this country? So let's fight back and let's win this bloody century. This man sitting to my left is a walking embodiment of why the motion is incorrect. <laughs> what he's just given you is entirely at the margins now of what the left in Britain or in most parts of the world would claim to argue for. If you look at the terms of the debate, fundamentally what the left has done is it's accepted what the right spent the last century fighting for. It's accepted the fact that it's market assumptions 
that it's things like free enterprise, that it's things like free choice that create a better quality of life for people. And that's why Owen is having so much difficulty rousing support in a room dominated by the left. Just because I call the Satan. Mehdi? Um, look, this is, as, as Ruth points out, this is a room dominated by the left, and in a sense it's an argument between uh, two, not visions of the left, but two uh, mindsets on the left. As I pointed out in my speech, there is a sense where we're always doing ourselves down. Owen said something in a speech that was very interesting. He said, look, in order to win this century, we've got to understand our history. We can't just say we've won it because it will undermine our efforts to go forward. I think the exact opposite. And if you go around forgetting about the great achievements uh, that were carried out and made and institutionalized, the great victories that our side of the argument achieved, uh, that's what really undermines us now. You know, Owen talks about crisis of capitalism. Exactly. There is a crisis of capitalism, and therefore we have to go back to our roots and look at what's gone on over the last hundred years, rather than either disown it or pretend it was all uh, eradicated at some period in 1979 as Margaret Thatcher walked through number 10, which I don't accept and which the facts uh, don't bear out. The other problem with this debate is that for a lot of lefties here, and it came out through some of the audience contributions, came up from one of the gentlemen over there, was it seems to be all or nothing. It seems to be zero sum. If, if the left didn't win 100%, the motion's wrong. We've lost, which is nonsense. As I said earlier, we could have won narrowly. I'll take a 51% victory as a victory. And the issue you have to ask yourself tonight when you vote is, on balance... What was the, what, who was the victory for? Was it for the Thatcher party, the Tory party, the Liberals, whatever you want to call them? Should, yes, they had many victories. No one's denying that. Of course, Ruth's side of the argument had many, many victories. The issue is, did they have more victories, more longer lasting victories? And did they pull off more reversals of our side of the argument? And I don't believe the answer is the case. As I gave the example, the institutions that the left built from 1900 onwards, from the welfare state to the NHS, to all of these achieved, to all the social liberal reforms that still endure today and and are still untouched today by a Conservative Party that knows it can't touch them, that knows it can't take the IEA agenda and push it forward. That is the real reason why I think we have to pat ourselves on the back and say, we won, just. Thank you very much. To Tim Montgomery. Um, I think the reason, part of the reason why the left has... Um, lost this debate is because the right has been mischaracterized by Simon, who can't even recognize that Margaret Thatcher was someone of the right, so anything she achieved has to apparently not apply to the right. And it's also by many people in the audience. I think the last questioner quite rightly said we need redistribution in this world, as if the right do not believe in redistribution. We believe in redistribution, but more modest than the left. What it is... <laughs> What it is, and this is why we believe in a, a modest and balanced redistribution, why we believe in a modest, lissized uh, state. And this is, comes to the heart of, and I think we should end with Margaret Thatcher at uh, this time, is, is partly a misunderstanding of what Margaret Thatcher believed and what she embodied. She wasn't just all about freedom, as Simon Heffer um, has suggested. The best book, which I really recommend to you on her, is a book called The Anatomy of Thatcherism by Shirley Robin Letwin. Oliver Letwin's mother. And what it described Thatcherism as was a belief in vigorous virtues. Virtues like thrift, hard work, enterprise, invention, and that those things should be rewarded in a society. And it's the link between having a system where you cannot be 
overprotected by failure by the state, that those virtues counted for something and rewarded. And if you go out there and ask people what they want today and, uh, and what matters to them, private property, low taxes, a nation state that governs itself, not supranational institutions, attitudes on welfare, crime, immigration, patriotism, family. Margaret Thatcher said the facts of life are conservative and they still are at the end of the 20th century. That is popularly held views of most people and that is why the right won the 20th century. Yes, yes, no extension. Thank you to all the speakers. To Helen, to Simon. I'm going to go to Medi, don't worry. Uh, you can come and chair if you wish. Um, <laughs> Medi, Tim, Ruth, and Owen. But now, now turn to you. Motion before the House was the left won the 20th century. Did it? Show of hands, please. Yes. <laughs> For that position, how many believe the left lost? What do we think? Yeah, we've won. Clearly, clearly we've won. Abstentions? We win. The motion is passed. The left won the 20th century. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder. A brand new podcast from Goalhanger where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.